Tonight I would like to speak on wise effort. I had the experience uh, a few months ago of being on a 10-day retreat teaching team. And when we divided up the topics, they asked me if I would speak on this particular one. And so I said that I would. And it was a big retreat and I suddenly had the opportunity to actually test something that I'd been wondering about for quite a while. And what I was curious about was what associations people had with this word effort, with this call to make effort that's part of the Buddha's teaching. So I actually asked people, popcorn style, what their associations were with this word. And up would pop words like grim or, you know, trying really hard or exhausting or fear of failure, uh, trying to uh, do it right. And then a few more neutral words that included things like uh, discipline or structure, those kinds of things. But most of the comments that were made were along the line um, of shrinking a little bit at the thought of having to make effort, kind of recoiling from this. And yet the Buddha in his teachings talks many times about the need to make effort and how important it is. It's one of the things that he enjoins people to the most often in his teachings. You'll hear him saying all the way through the teachings, a common refrain is, strive on with diligence. Here's some some teachings I'm giving you now. Go and work it out for yourself or employ it. Put it to use yourself and see what your experience is. And we know that wise effort is part of the Eightfold Path. It's step number six. It comes after the steps that refer to sila and itself is part of the cluster that deals with the development of concentration. So there's wise effort, six, wise mindfulness seven, and wise concentration eight. So it's important. Now if you consider that the Buddha's teachings are that the reason we suffer is because of avijja or because of a deeply rooted ignorance in our, both our conscious and our unconscious minds then you'll see that the uprooting of that ignorance can only take place through the cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of clear seeing. 
And that involves mindfulness and concentration. When these qualities are equipped, then the mind is able to closely observe its experience moment by moment and actually begin to see how suffering is created within the body-mind system and how uh, it can be released. But in order for there to be the establishment of mindfulness, the establishment of concentration, there has to be effort. That comes at the beginning. So the Buddha often talks about how the fact, about the fact that no person can purify the mind of another. But he also talks about the fact that it's really up to us individually to purify or to awaken or to educate, however you want to put it, our own body-mind system. That the teachings give us the method to do this. The instructions given for meditation and other parts of the path give us the tools, but it's really up to us to employ the tools, to run the experiment in effect and see what actually happens. To see what happens when we put these teachings and these practices to the test. And of course the Buddha's own liberation called for a tremendous amount of effort. Some of it skillful and some of it not so skillful. He had to learn to make his own discernment about what wise effort was and what unwise effort was. And this is true for all of us. So it's important to understand that we're talking about effort expended in a particular context in a particular direction and in a particular way. So it's not just effort in general. There's more um, finesse than that involved with it. When I was a little kid, I uh, learned to swim when I was five by going to the pool at the YWCA and, and part the swimming part was okay, but the diving part, to pass the swimming test, you had to dive into the pool and then swim across the length of the pool. And I had a really hard time with the diving part because no matter how I tried to do it, I would always just sort of cruise out and then, you know, there was the classic flop. And it was kind of like the worse I did, the harder I would try. You know, the further I, more energy I would put into into it, the further I would launch out from the side of the pool, the higher up I would go and the more that I would flop down. It wasn't until years ago when I actually watched my slightly older cousin diving off a dock and I actually watched what she was doing that I got the idea. Oh... You don't, like, cast yourself upon the waters. 
there's, you kind of like angle down. <laughs> you angle down in a particular way so that you can enter into the water. And I watched how she did it and, you know, like her hands were out and they kind of broke the surface of the water first and then the, the head followed and the rest of her. And there was a, hardly a splash to it. It was a completely different experience than the, the way I knew diving. So there's nuance to this, making effort. You know, we have to learn how to do this from the in, inside out, and a lot of it is trial and error. But let's talk about a precursor to our ability to uh, practice wise effort. In order for effort to be made, there has to be energy. And it has to, has to be a particular kind of energy as it's talked about in the, the teachings. The word is virya. And it refers to a particular kind of courageous energy, a particular kind of fullness of heart in the, the undertaking. So this obviously taps into some consideration of motivation and intention in undertaking practice. In order to fully commit yourself to something as subtle and sometimes difficult and painful as this, there has to be some kind of motivation behind it. Otherwise, you're just going to give up at the stages of difficulty that arise organically as part of this process. You're just going to decide to, to bag it and um, go listen to some uh, meditation uh, music or something, you know? Get some beats going. So this virya is sometimes illustrated in the commentaries by an example of virya is like a strong man standing on the banks of a rushing stream with a group of people. And he is the one that plunges forward with confidence to cross the stream, encouraging the others to come with him. So that's an image. Maybe another image, uh, more to our experience, might be Viria is like a woman who has longed for a child who is getting ready to go into labor. <laughs> and she knows where it's going and she knows what she wants and she's fully committed to it. And even though she knows that there are challenges there, the mind and the heart are on board with this, this she is fully committed to. So this energy that can arise from virya in and of itself is morally neutral. Energy in and of itself is morally neutral. We can can have 
examples of people who are tremendously committed to doing things that are very unskillful and incredibly destructive. So I would point to ISIL or some of those groups. Those guys are really committed. They've got a lot of energy for what they're doing. They're making a lot of effort in an unskillful direction. Or you can have somebody like the Dalai Lama who has sustained energy for the well-being and liberation of Tibet over generations under extremely difficult circumstances. Both of them have energy. But the question is, is it wisely or is it skillfully applied? And in the Buddhist teachings, of course, we're applying energy in the direction of the cultivation of those states of mind which are conducive to our happiness and well-being and towards the liberation of the heart and mind. And we're also letting go of unskillful, unwholesome states of heart and mind. So in order for energy to really move us along, it needs to move in alignment with other parts of the path, in particular, wise view and wise intention, which are right there at the beginning, meaning the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and the cultivation of renunciation and non-harming. So if you are interested in arousing energy for yourself, you might look in the direction of actually looking at some particular reflections for yourself. Things that could bring forward in your heart and mind a sense of urgency that would support your ability to really commit to the process. So at the beginning of practice periods or at the beginning of a retreat or at the beginning of a day, it can be really skillful to review what your motivation or what your intention actually is for being here. So using this kind of thought, the mind's capacity for reflection, we can sometimes bring up from deeper emotional levels, some fuel, some power that support our willingness to make effort. So some of these these reflections that are often talked about include things like uh, reflecting on the rarity of human birth and having the capacity as a human being to actually practice dharma. having the good fortune to have actually connected with the Dharma. How rare is it to be someone who has wound up at a place like this, that's had all the conditions and circumstances of life come together to allow you to to be here, to have this time, to have enough health of body and mind to actually undertake this. Reflections around things like the certainty of death, 
and the fact that we don't know the time of that can heighten a sense of urgency. An appreciation for the potential of liberation and its great bliss. Or perhaps, most importantly for many of us, an appreciation that of the gifts that a liberated mind can bring to others in our life. The way learning how to work with our own hearts and minds can strengthen our capacity to be of benefit to others. Or something that's unique to you. Or some hybrid of all the above. Because if you don't know why you're doing this, at least in a generic sense, then the heart and mind are sometimes easily discouraged by difficulty. But if you know why you're doing it, and that why is something that's important to you, you're more likely to continue. So now that we're talking about energy, the question is, so okay, well now we've got some energy. Energy for what? <laughs> Generically, the path for liberation. And there are in particular four things that are talked about under this practice of wise effort. And they're called the four great endeavors. So the Buddha says there's four things that you're really trying to do in the application of energy and effort. And of course, his basic premise is nobody wants to suffer. We want to be happy. We want our well-being. We want, want to be able to figure out how to get that, how to move in that direction. And within the Buddhist system, the Buddha has discerned which qualities of hearts and mind are conducive towards us moving in that direction, moving in the direction of liberation, to the qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, and which ones lead in the other direction, which ones further enmesh us in pain and suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. So he says, okay, if that's the binary, then what we would want to do to go towards what we want would be to increase the non-suffering states or to increase the wholesome states and to decrease, reduce, let go of the unwholesome states. So the first of these great endeavors, first of the four is to prevent, prevent the arising of unarisen unwholesome states. So that's a double negative, right? But basically what it means is don't get yourself in trouble. So these are states of suffering. It would be well if we did not experience these states, if we did not invite them. So how can you do that? This is the trick, right? Well, there are a number of methods. 
One is the cultivation of sila, has within it a protection from acts, unskillful acts of body, speech, and mind. Another thing is sense restraint, which basically means keeping an eye on the six sense doors and not letting your mind just kind of wander out and get lost in whatever propensities, unconscious propensities it might have. And a third way is clear and continuous strong mindfulness. Strong, clear, continuous mindfulness suppresses the unwholesome states. But of course, as we see, that's kind of like, well, good luck with that one. Right? Okay, let's just turn on mindfulness, get it clear and strong and continuous, and, you know, we've got it done. But that's usually not within our reach. Sometimes it is. And we're developing the capacity for that to be possible more often in doing what we're doing here exactly. But often it's not true. Can't be immediately summoned. So then the second of the great endeavors is to um, abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. So if trouble is there, be skillful in relationship to it. Don't get lost in it. Don't cling to it. Don't get on board with it. See it for what it is and figure out how to work with it. So basically here he's talking about the hindrances, what we call within this system, the five hindrances to the development of concentration. And they're pretty clear what they are. The, you know, the two biggies are uh, craving uh, for s- uh, sense desire and aversion. And then the other three are um, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and uh, doubt. So these are the tormenting mind states. And there are infinite permutations of these, you know, different special blends. You know how like they make special teas and coffees by blending this kind of bean with that kind of bean. Well, you know, the hindrances can come in uh, various blends, just as wholesome states can, depending on the mental factors. And a lot of practice that we do is in this area learning how to recognize when the mind is caught up in suffering, what suffering is there, and then figuring out how to be present with that in a way that's skillful. A lot of our learning is right along this particular continuum. So the basic thing that you're trying to do in relationship to the hindrances is it's always about reestablishing mindfulness. So you can do that via investigation of the state itself, recognizing and investigating the state. Oh, this is uh, anger. This is what it's like. It's unpleasant. This is what it feels like in the body. As I observe this, this is what happens with anger. Sometimes you can do it by redirecting the mind, although that can be very uh, difficult if the... the hindrance is strong, 
just by turning the mind to another state or giving it another object. But each of these hindrances also has specific things that you can do in relationship to that particular hindrance. You know, you'll get instructions like, well, you know, if it's sloth or torpor, you can open your eyes or, you know, you can stand up, you can imagine a bright light. Uh, if it's sloth, which means the mind's feeling kind of lazy, you can, you know, reflect on the certainty of death or different things like that. So each of them have their particular remedies in addition to the general remedies. But we have to learn how to work with the hindrances if we want to get to the place where we've got the potential for continuous mindfulness and the concentration that then can open from the establishment of mindfulness. So it's an interesting thing that when we learn to connect skillfully with unwholesome states, we actually undercut them. So their presence in the mind stream overall diminishes and the strength of their arising weakens over time. Because they can't flourish in a mind stream that has mindfulness nearby. They don't really get on a roll in the same way that they do in the earlier parts of our practice when the mindfulness is really spotty. So it's kind of as if this practice of mindfulness is actually changing the, the pH in the soil of our mind or something that makes it more uh, hospitable to wholesome states and inhospitable to unskillful ones. So the third of these great endeavors is to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. So the main way that we do this in practice is basically through the cultivation of mindfulness. And the cultivation of mindfulness begins with the hearing of instructions and the willingness to try to put the instructions into practice. So this points to the importance of clarity about what the instructions actually are. So if you were going to say back to yourself what set of instructions you're following, how would you put it? This is uh, an important point because if we understand what the practice rules are it's con- and we follow them, it's conducive to the establishment of mindfulness. If we're not clear about what the practice instructions actually are or we're kind of toss, the, toss them aside in the interest of something that, that might seem more immediately interesting or pleasant, it's hard for there to be Uh, traction. So with the establishment of mindfulness you open the door for other wholesome 
states to arise. So if you look at the seven factors of awakening, the first is mindfulness, then there's investigation, then there's energy, effort, then there's rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And they tend to unfold in that kind of way. So this points again back to the establishment of mindfulness as really being the place of entry, the beginning door. And the last of these great endeavors is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. So how do you do that? That sounds like a lot of doing. To maintain it and perfect it. Sounds a little bit like gripping and perfectionistic upon first hearing. But really the main thing that's being talked about here is actually developing the capacity to recognize skillful or wholesome states when they're present. It's really interesting to me in interviews when I ask people what wholesome states they've noticed that most of the time people can't tell me. Which is really interesting because it's not as if they're not there. They are there starting with mindfulness. Even if you feel like you're really struggling as a, as a yogi, as a practitioner <laughs> while you're here, there's some mindfulness th- there. There's some renunciation present in the mind in being in this kind of environment and letting go of your cell phone. Right? There's some paramis present in the resolve to keep getting up and trying. There's some patience maybe present in the mind with how often it feels like you're failing and you keep going. There can be courage, there can be metta, there can be equanimity, there can be generosity. There are many, many, many wholesome states. But we don't necessarily see them. It's almost like our minds are, Rick Hansen, who wrote The Buddha's Brain, says something like, our systems are Teflon for the recognition of wholesome states. But it's important that we incline the mind to see those. So sometimes an instruction will be given to yogis to actually notice the wholesome states that are present. Because just in the same way that mindfulness of unwholesome states tends to weaken them and undercut them, especially over the longer term, recognition of the wholesome states tends to increase them, their strength and their frequency within the mind stream. So start noticing that, right? It's important. So those are the areas where we apply effort to those four great endeavors. That's the big picture of it. So now let's talk a little bit about the middle path of effort. 
which has to do with flexibility of mind, skillful means, and clear seeing. So, probably a number of you know the story of the three bears. So this is a story often told in in the States to children about how there's three bears and this long story goes on and on about you know the porridge being too cold the porridge being too hot and then there's ah right in the middle it's just right and effort is like this too there can be a kind of rigid insistent tight draining kind of way of making effort and then there can be another way of where the system isn't really committed to the undertaking and it's kind of sloppy and easily discouraged and can't marshal the energy to do what's really required. And the Buddha himself had, had his own exploration of this, as I said earlier. He went through this phase where he decided that he would just not eat and subject his or sleep and he would subject his body to all these austerities and the thought that he's going to somehow uh, punish the flesh enough so that the spirit would reveal itself in a perfected state. And he came to the edge of death in that way of working. But he caught it right in time and realized this is not the way to go. And there are a number of stories in the, in the suttas where the Buddha is counseling people about effort and how important it is to make effort. And also some stories where he basically told people it's not about that. It's not about torturing yourself to death. It's not about trying too hard. That's not right either. So the classic story of this is a young monk who was gently raised, a musician, and he ordained and he had a lot of chanda, he had a lot of will to do, he had a lot of commitment to making it happen. And he did his walking in bare feet on a rocky path and his feet got all cut up and he just kept on doing it and injuring himself further and I guess his sister came along and saw what was going on and went to the Buddha and said something along the lines of, my brother is just doing this thing. Can you go talk to him? And so the Buddha had a chat with the novice and uh, said, now you were a musician in your, before you ordained, right? And the guy says, yeah, musician. And he said, so when you were playing your lute and you tuned it too tight, was it in key? This is what the lawyers would call a leading question. And the answer was, well, well, no, Lord. He says, well, when you loosened the keys so much that the strings were slack, 
were you in key? And he said, no, Lord. And he says, just so. There's an optimal place. And how do you know that optimal place? You know the optimal place of tuning or of effort by actually listening. So this points to the importance of feedback from our own direct experience and how we make effort. And where we make effort, how we make effort, is not something that we fix once and it stays there. What is skillful really depends on the totality of the circumstances. So then the question, of course, comes up, well, how do you, how do you know what the totality of the circumstances are? And the answer is by attending with mindfulness closely and continuously. But there are some wise steps that you could take in finding this place of wise effort. So a first effort, which is foundational, has to do with clarifying the meditation instructions. You know, to really get a good grip on what those are. Keeping it as simple as possible The hardest thing about this, or one of the hardest things about it, is it's just so damn simple. And our minds are complexification machines. So we're always adding something more to it, or something extra, or trying to do something in addition to just knowing what we're experiencing, what's there in the foreground, in the present tense, and letting it be as it is. So it's important with wise effort uh, and simplifying what it is of realizing that we're not trying to impose an ideal outcome or create an experience. So we're not trying to summon anything up in particular. And if we remember that this is a present tense activity, it's a present tense focus. That's the only thing that's ever going on in insight meditation is awareness of the present moment experience. So even if you're having an experience of a memory of the past or a worry about the future, these are present tense experiences. These are experienced right now as a memory, a present memory, or as a a present worry. So being willing to connect to what's actually happening and bringing mindfulness to that is really what this is about. So, of course, we fall left, we fall right, we get too tight, we get too loose, we lose the object, we grip the object with a death grip. We get tired because we're trying too hard, we get fall asleep because we're too lax. We fall in and out of tune, right? 
But when we notice it, when we hear it, we can tune it back up. We can pay attention to the feedback loop that comes about through how we're trying. So just a a few things that might indicate to you if there's the strings are too slack. So if there isn't clarity about the instructions or an attempt to follow them, then that's too lax. If you're bored or listless and you're not willing to investigate it, it's probably too lax. If you're unfocused and okay with that being that way, probably too lax. Dullness and sleepiness that isn't countered or investigated, probably too lax. Sliding off into states of torpor and being okay with staying there, (laughs) probably too lax. Lack of confidence or willingness to try, that's probably too lax. The virya isn't present. So you're going to need to work to um, increase the energy there by using reflections or some other method. Not clear about motivation or the motivation isn't deep. Probably too lax. So some of the things that I've already talked about are methods to tune that up, to interject more energy into the system and more willingness, more commitment to it. So if you're going to look at examples where the, the strings might be tuned too tight, you'd be looking at another set of things. And this is really common for Westerners. Certain cultures more than others, but certainly uh, Americans, a lot of people from Northern Europe, cultures from Northern Europe, that, you know, trying to go for it and do it right and try really hard and succeed through will, succeed through effort. You know, this is part of our psychological makeup and conditioning. So if you recognize yourself in that that description, then you would want to be looking out for noticing if you're insistent on particular outcomes or experiences. So you have fixed goals, fixed views. So you're actually being controlling rather than receptive, right? You're leaning into it in a certain kind of way. Another example of being too tightly keyed is if you're viewing what happens as a reflection on yourself and the mind is grabbing onto this idea of doing it good or doing it right or looking good in the doing of it. That's like bringing a lot of extra stuff into it, isn't it? It's like your whole self-worth now is involved with whether or not 
uh, you can feel the breath continuously for five minutes or whether you don't fall asleep or something. Can you see how that bringing that into it really ladens it with all of this additional stress and burden and it's not just that you fell asleep or you got distracted. It's like you're hopeless or you're, you know, not able to do it at all. You can see the inflation of dukkha. So, you know, basically in that, in that particular example, there are some hindrances there right in the foreground of how effort is being made, but the body-mind system isn't seeing them. It's not seeing the wanting it to be a certain way. Or it's not seeing the fear that might be present in it, it not being easy. Or so you really want to watch that one. So you may be trying too hard if the mind bounces around a lot and it's kind of ricocheting off objects. You might be be trying to hold too tightly onto one particular thing when really the actual experience is that the energy is high and it's moving. And it would be probably uh, more uh, skillful to actually let it move rather than try to nail it to an object. So you might be trying too hard too if your frustration level is high and what you do with that is you you know how with betting there's this expression doubling down on something you double down like you're playing poker or something you've got a bet out there a certain number of chips and you decide to slide a whole other stack out there so you know there's a way that when frustration is high if, if we kind of double down on effort being made in the same way that already isn't working, that might be a sign that the feedback loop has, isn't engaged because we're not noticing that that way of attempting to be present is not having that effect. So another s- sign that we're getting too keyed up about things is if there's an uh, increasingly imbalanced reaction to difficulty. So there again, you know, things get hard and we just try to power through. You know, step on the gas. Mm, the car is sliding sideways and we're just like, you know, it's like, no, it would be better to notice that the car is sliding sideways and feel that experience of, uh, you know, things not quite tracking, because that is the experience at the moment, right? This is the car going sideways. And bring that into the field of awareness. And then through a little more direct connection to what's actually present, making whatever adjustments are there. So no, another example of this... Uh, rigidity uh, of effort mode when it's engaged is uh, state chasing or manufacturing where we're trying to get a particular uh, state we're trying to 
make something happen. Maybe it's something we've experienced before, or maybe it's something that we've read about in a book, or maybe it's something that um, we would like to continue. So another indication is if you start feeling depleted or worn out or burned out or agitated or restless or unable to sleep or relax, often there's too much trying of a particularly rigid kind going on there. I can remember once uh, on the three-month retreat, first three-month retreat, So I'm laughing about this because you, you'll see the, the striving in it. I mean, the way I, w- the way I went about it was every sit, every walk, you know, morning to night, no breaks. At noon, I wouldn't take a break or lie down. I'd, I'd you know, go and do more practice. You know, if it hurt, I would just keep practicing. If it, <laughs> right? Pain, pain, oh, pain, 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 pain. Right? So there was a real commitment to it. But I, I realized at a certain point that I was reaching for something. And I was started to wonder, well, am I even mindful at all? And I went in to see Sharon and I said, I don't, I don't think I'm mindful. And she said, I was sitting in a chair, she said, can you feel your back against the chair? <laughs> and I said, Yeah. She said, can you feel your feet on the floor? I said, yeah. She says, that's mindful. I said, it is? (laughs) That's it? That's all? So you can see, you know, like the whole system, my whole system had this idea that there was something out there that I had to like reach for and like get and hold on to and that that's what this was about when really it was about just recognizing in a close and interested, allowing, receptive way what I was actually experiencing. And I could actually do that even if I uh, did legs up the wall pose after lunch instead of going and doing more walking practice. (laughs) I could actually balance my energy by doing something else and continue the mindfulness in the process of doing that balancing. Hmm. So this is the learning, huh? So this is all pointing to the fact that meditation is <laughs> like like diving, <laughs> like surfing, like golfing, kind of a finesse sport. And just as with those things, we aren't born knowing how to do it exactly, even though it's something really simple. So we have to figure it out through this process of trial and error, of trying in a particular way and then taking the feedback from that and then making adjustments and then observing what happens 
from that way of making effort. And that's how it all opens. So we actually bring mindfulness into the observation of what is happening as we make effort. So it's not really about trying really, really, really hard. It's about wise effort, which means effort that's committed, effort that has integrity, and is flexible as far as do I need to apply more energy now or do I need more relaxation? But the integrity piece is really the key, the commitment and integrity of effort. And then the rest of it is figuring out the fine tuning, learning how to do it through our observation in our own laboratory as we, as we try these teachings. So I wish for you your own uh, interesting efforts in tuning the loot of your own mind so that you can find uh, the sweet spot where it sounds right. And remembering like all stringed instruments, you will need to retune from time to time. And the only thing you need to do to do that is you just need to listen to how it sounds. So let's sit for a moment. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings. Now we can chant together the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.